welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Daniel Hanley, and joining me on the other line, now that he's back from an impromptu visit to Aunt Helen, it's John McMahon. What a great time it was. Just lovely chatting with Aunt Helen in that house full of memories that are very real. (laughs) But, Danielle, also joining us on the line today, a return guest... The one and only producer, Amy. And Amy, I hear you're just back from making a lot of money scalping those hockey tickets. <laughs> That's my side hustle. Um, <laughs> if only Oye Ganina had StubHub. <laughs> StubHub. <laughs> Amy, welcome back to Not Quite Great Books. It's always a pleasure to be with you guys. It's so nice to be on this side of the boards, always. <laughs> <laughs> I will say we did get some great producing notes from Amy before we started recording. So (laughs) really living up to the title. As as they so often are. (laughs) (laughs) No, we'll take solicited, unsolicited. We'll take whatever. Whatever comes at us. Yes. We did have something come to us. This is exciting. It's our first uh, listener mail from someone that we, Danielle and I, didn't know before. Amazing. So... We have listeners, apparently, more than we thought, but let's bring up this listener mail. Uh, We have listener Mike from Orange County, who said some very kind things about the podcast, and then made a really good point about the season one finale, which we're going to do here in season two, episode three, just because that's the timeline we're on. And so Mike from Orange County points out that Nina's actions in the season one finale were more crucial both in the plot and the character development than perhaps we had discussed on the episode. Yeah. Like she has the exfiltration seemingly in place if she were to have stayed put in the safe house. And it's in fact her actively choosing to like clandestinely run back to the embassy that sets the rest of that in motion. Right. So like if she doesn't go back, if she had stayed put, Arcadi doesn't send out the cars. Claudia doesn't see the abort mission sign. Philip can't warn Elizabeth. Elizabeth would be actually caught. And so Mike makes these points and suggests that Nina finally actually has a legitimate alternative. Like if the FBI had succeeded, she probably can actually be exfiltrated. Unlike the previous episode, the oath where she's like screwed and caught against, uh, against, the knowledge that she gives to Arcadi. And so Mike just points out, uh, and we thank listener Mike, that kind of how important Nina is and how pivotal and how she's like the fulcrum, again, plot-wise, but also her own character development, and that like she really becomes the double agent in that episode. Thoughts, Danielle or Amy? Yeah, I mean, I, first of all, thank you, listener Mike, one for listening. Um, and <laughs> One through 29 for listening. Yeah, and two for sending us these awesome thoughts in classic, not quite great books fashion, both agree and disagree. <laughs> Perfect. Um, like, I absolutely agree that Nina's actions are crucial to the plot and to her character development, and that's, like, something different than we've seen, I think, in the rest of the season, and I, like, appreciate that point. That being said, I feel like all of Nina's actions hinge on the fact that like she ultimately like doesn't think she can actually trust Stan right she doesn't she doesn't trust that exfiltration is an actual alternative for her and so I think that like that has to be read read alongside her like the the clandestine run to the embassy like, I think that these points are, are ostensibly correct, but that's not the universe that Nina lives in. Nina lives in a universe in which, like, she can't trust the FBI. And so, like, if she can't trust them and can't trust, like, um, Russia, 
then it's going to be the Soviet Union that she turns to. I would also add, because I watched this episode and I, um, I mean, of course I watch all the episodes <laughs> as a producer. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I remember watching this episode and, uh, First of all, I assumed that her exfiltration at that point was dangerous for her. The KGB, especially because now Arkady knows, is not going to be like, oh, well, Gasnina's gone. Right. Throw <laughs> right, our hands right. in the air, right? They will right. use their extensive network in the U.S. to yeah, track her down. Right. So she's just as dangerous either way. Right now, she's actually only safe uh, in this in-between place where she's both a KGB asset wow. and an American asset. Wow. Reluctant, a reluctant both end from, but I did it. We'll take it. Nonetheless. I also want to just add that the episode and that whole sequence really confirmed for me, the Arcadi standing. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. like a real ball. Agree. The paint, the, the spraying of the board sign on the car, like genius. <laughs> of all the people in our lives who could join us in our Cotty standing, Amy, you might be like singularly capable of that. All right. <laughs> should, we, should we move on to this episode? Yeah, let's dig in. All right. So today we're talking about American season two, episode three, The Walk-In directed by Konstantin Makris and written by Stuart Zykerman. And with the summary of the walk-in, let me throw it to Danielle. Okay, so the, the IMDb summary for uh, Season 2, Episode 3 of The Americans is that Philip and Elizabeth infiltrate a submarine parts factory, photographing propeller plans. In disguise, Elizabeth visits Jared Connors, intent on delivering a letter from his now-deceased mother. Paige skips school to track down Elizabeth's Aunt Helen. Stan investigates Dameron's work history with the World Bank. Thank you very much, Danielle. And Amy, I think one of the things that you pointed out that we should probably start with when we were discussing how to do this episode today is the separation and perhaps even loneliness of the characters. So, like, what about that was significant in this episode to you? I think it just struck me that every one of these characters, many of their plot lines are like off on their own. They're, they're in one-on-one conversations with like one-off people who appear, right? Like there's very little collaboration. There's very little partnership. There's a lot of scattering of these characters. Um, starting with Paige taking a bus to Harrisburg. What? <laughs> That's quite a bus ride. What? Elizabeth going to see Jared on her own, sending Philip back to the house. Like there's just yeah. very little time when more than two characters or two central characters are in space together. Um, and they're all just doing their own things. I would say even like in the um, submarine factory, like Philip and Elizabeth are separated right. in the factory for right. most of the Pretty time. Quickly they split up. That's right. And, and take advantage of Derek's isolation as being the only actual employee who is there. Yeah, that's really key. That's really, really key. Continues where you can see that they are, I mean, continuing in the plot of Leanne and Emmett's and Amelia's deaths, they are just, they all feel so alone. And actually the character who really felt alone for me was Henry. Mm-hmm. Um, oh my God. Henry. Rough on me. I, Henry, all he wants to do is like, Look at talk about cars with his dad. Like every bid that he makes for connection and attention just oh. goes nowhere. It just dies. And then like, oh, he's looking at this telescope at the end and his thing breaks apart. He throws it away. And he like no like I mean, at one point Paige is just like, you'll be fine at home by yourself <laughs> for a few hours, right? Classic parenting style of this entire show and universe. 
And the 80s. The 80s, right? (laughs) And it's just that that's sort of everyone. They're like, you're good on your own, right? And that is just Mm. happens to everyone this episode. Right. In a way that like so much of the show has various pairings and relationships that they're working through. But Amy, I think what you're suggesting is that at root or behind all of that at all points is the fundamental baseline loneliness or separation or isolation of all of these characters who are caught up in the cold war in spying in dysfunctional family dynamics in whatever the very, and the ways that those things connect and are kind of metonyms for one another in the show. And so I, I think that this episode functionally works to bring that to the foreground in a way that, you know, the past two episodes where there's a lot of Philip and Elizabeth collaboration and kind of uh, rapprochement and sex together doesn't necessarily always indicate their possible or actual loneliness. Yeah, there's a notable lack of intimacy, right? That's the key for me is like, man, there's... And and I think that has as much to do with the like quantity of time spent together as the quality of the connections, which gets back to the circumstances you're pointing at, John. I mean, I will just say there is that creepy part where Philip puts Bassetracin on Elizabeth's scar, which is perhaps like the one major moment of intimacy. And it was one that made my skin curdle. Because Philip is like very hot for naked Elizabeth rubbing this on her scar. And she's like, I got shot. Like, get off my body. (laughs) It's a little bit like, um, you know, your stretch marks are so beautiful. (laughs) No, thank you. Strong. That's true. Strong wife guy energy before wife guys were a thing. Right. That well, Philip is as capable we've seen of. From, as you saw in episode one, Philip is. Episode, <laughs> uh, I can't even remember what episode it is, but like Philip is kind of a proto wife guy for both his wives in a certain way. <laughs> I can't. A hundred percent true. Oh my God. So spot on. So spot on. Oh, anything else about loneliness that, that strikes us in this episode? Yeah, um, I think. about Kelly. Yeah. yeah, I think that it's worth on the that last note. We see a very, very lonely Elizabeth and Philip dynamic from the flashbacks back to 1966 yeah. and 1967, including the fundamental coldness of their decision to have a kid together or Elizabeth's decision Elizabeth, to have sex yeah. with Phil to have a kid. And just the most instrumental kind of detail-oriented, process-oriented, and, like, least sexy way possible that they could conceive a child together is what Elizabeth communicates to Philip. In 1967, Philip is like, really? Like, the look that he gives her when she's like, finally, I accept this proposal slash assignment from you and the center is just really, really, like, what is happening? Like, I feel alone, all of this. Which is, of course, contrasted with the intimacy and or at least the hot sex they have with one another in the 80s if not the intimacy that accompanies it well and i would also say that just to like to draw the parallel a bit further it the look that philip gives elizabeth in that moment in the 60s is kind of similar to the look that elizabeth gives philip when he's like rubbing up on her scar right like Mm, there's a similar like this isn't exactly what I signed up for vibe to, to like both of that. One of the other things though, that we see in addition to this loneliness are the possibility or the dangling of potential friendships that might or might not combat 
the kind of loneliness that so many of these characters are experiencing, which gets thematized very explicitly when Philip and Elizabeth are getting ready for their mission, right? Because they stop, yeah. they like have hidden some stuff behind, somebody else has hidden some stuff for them behind a tab machine at a gas station. We'll get to that tab machine later. Don't worry about it. And <laughs> they have the conversation of, well, so Leanne and Emmett, you know, their son Jared went to the family friends that he had babysat for. And so Philip and Elizabeth are like, what happens to Paige and Henry if what happens to the uh, to them happens to us? Mm-hmm. And Philip, both jokingly and seriously, I think we can read it as, says yeah. to the Beemans, who are the closest things to friends that they actually have, which leads Elizabeth to say, well, we don't actually have any friends. I mean, my answer was also to the Beemans. Those are the only people that like are in, what are they going to go to, Anne Helen? Come on. And Philip accusingly tells Elizabeth, you wanted it this way. You yeah. wanted to not have any friends. Although I'm not sure that that's fair. I have to be honest. Like, I, I just don't know besides Leanne and Emmett who their friends could have possibly been. Yeah. I, I think that that's right. But I also think that like the serious part of, of the statement from Philip is getting at Elizabeth's coldness. Right. Which is yeah. like, going back to the, okay, I'm ready. Like, let's have kids now. Like Mm -hmm. to the, like, this is our mission. This is what we're doing. Right. There's a coldness. There are like walls about her that we now sort of in the flash forward to the eighties, see that those have at least started to break down in a variety of ways. Like, and I think that this event where like they, their friends are, are killed and they like see the children, yeah. One one of the one of Leanne and Emmett's kids is is murdered with them, and one of them is sort of like left to to deal with all this. So I think like this is really like this is shaking up Elizabeth's world in a way that we like really hadn't seen. That I would say even her getting shot didn't do right. It like but the the now the sort of Henry and Page of it all is disrupting disrupting something for her mm-hmm. and up until now it's literally just been the mission page is also a very lonely character mm-hmm. including lonely in her semi knowledge of what is going on with her parents and one of the things that i think this episode does very intelligently is that as she is going out on this solo mission to check out whether aunt helen actually exists and thus what this lie suspicious situation is with her parents or with her mom more specifically is she meets Kelly on the bus, right? Kelly, who is a child of divorced parents, Kelly, who's like traveling back and forth on the same bus to Harris between Har- somewhere outside of Harrisburg and, and DC as Paige has discovered that she can go on. And Kelly is somebody who offers Paige an external perspective or standpoint or almost like a sense of validation that something is weird, something is going on with her parents. And I think that Paige really wanted and needed that. And that is one of, of course, the reasons why she calls Kelly at the end of the episode and is like, let's hang out. Finally, I have somebody who has fucked up parents or who is unsure of what's going on with their parents. I will say, um, and we can get into this more in the dossier, but like my first instinct was like, oh, Kelly's the, the like agent that the center put on her. But that, but that only underscores the like, these people cannot have friends. <laughs> yeah. 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 That, like, God forbid Paige have like one moment of like warmth and connection with someone without it arousing some level of concern. That's their life. And that sucks. 
Absolutely. Are Nina and Oleg friends? No, Oleg no. wants to fuck her. <laughs> He's friend zoned. Mm, yeah, yes, exactly. Nina is like we could be bros, but that's all. I'm that's not even not sure Nina's insane. like we could be bros. She's like, why are you in True. my office? That's, I get enough right. attention from men who are actually powerful. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Not you and your, like, oversized dumb suits and your hockey tickets. <laughs> I've got a lot to say about the hockey tickets later on, but we can save that for Gloss. Wow, a, a sports storyline for John. Honestly, I didn't see this for you, but I love it. Me too. <laughs> Great. I can't wait. Other lonely characters in this episode we should talk about? Oh, Sandy and Stan. Yeah. This one, my notes literally say, oof, Sandy, and there are, like, seven O's that I wrote out. <laughs> Just like, this is me working on myself. I'm like, oh, God, please stop. Before we get into that, Daniel, what would you say the rest of your notes were like for this episode? Oh, oh my God. Okay. Um, Oof, Sandy. Oh, no. We don't have any real friends. Too real. But that was about my life. Um, (laughs) I'm afraid of Elizabeth. Okay, Stan, slow on the uptake, but ultimately gets there. Oh, boy. Shot and killed Bruce. Okay, but who actually is Aunt Helen? Oh, Oleg. Flirty, flirty Oleg. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. I'm sorry. Just the, like... Wait, what was it like? Uh oh, shot and killed. <laughs> I believe it's like somehow like a video, like the weirdest video game <laughs> dialogue. Oops, it's like you shot and killed Bruce. A pop up, like in a in a in a cut scene, like oh yeah. boy, shot and killed. <laughs> You know, just uh, uh, tripping yeah, memory. This is a real, as I think we've established. This is a real bummer of an episode. It's not 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 a ton of lightheartedness going on. I Absolutely. will say there's there's a bit of paralleling between Sandy and Stan and Nina and Oleg happening here, which puts Nina and Stan's relationship with one another in an interesting contrast here. That much like there, much like Oleg would like to be bantering with Nina, right? Stan would like to be bantering with Sandy. And there even is a little bit of like back and forth and actual genuine, like having fun for about 20 seconds before Stan completely, of course, misunderstands the purpose of Sandy going to work on herself in this course. I have to say I'm, I'm a little more sympathetic to Stan in this regard, just because I'm like, Oh, this is like proto goop or Tony Robbins or God only knows what, you know what I mean? I am also, like, more sympathetic to Stan. Like, I'm with you on that. But not because of the ridiculousness of what Sandy is going to do, but the seriousness with which she is taking it. It's like, you could, like, in a different universe where they don't have all of the, like, disconnect and, like, and tension build up and, like, where their marriage isn't loveless and Stan isn't sleeping with someone else. There's a version of this where Stan, where, where that is just banter and Stan and Sandy could even say exactly the same thing. Like, no, come on, I'm working on myself, like in a lighter way. And yet like, it's just, Amy, to your point about this bummer of an episode, it's just like, it's so heavy because everything with them is so heavy. I can't say more because where Sandy is going actually will become a plot point oh. as we continue. So okay. no spoilers. This is no a, spoilers. This is a spoiler I want to just say podcast. I want to just add one quick last character, and that's Jared. Yeah, who, like who is 
of course, going to be among the loneliest characters and my heart breaks for him because he's just like now fully, I mean, in some ways he's alone in the world and in some ways he's more taken care of than many of the other characters with more genuine intimacy. And he has this like more like clearer connection to his parents in some way um, than Paige does, I think, uh, for example. But, oof, my God, like, this kid, I just, my heart breaks. Well, and I think that that's actually, like, a really good pivot point for us to think about, like, parenting and motherhood. Because mm-hmm. the interaction that we get with between Elizabeth and Jared and Elizabeth in perhaps the worst wig of the entire season <laughs> so far, um, but also, like, the most 80s accurate yes. <laughs> wig um is like part of child services and shows up at the at the house where now the the people who have taken Jared in and they have this like really there's something incredibly heartfelt about the conversation Elizabeth has with the like the mother uh, in that household sort of poses an interesting juxtaposition to like Elizabeth's super cold approach to motherhood earlier on in the episode and and like I think it's interesting for us to think about Elizabeth's motherhood journey a little bit and the way in which like these, like, I don't know, impulses or like the way that she is vis-a-vis Jared versus the way that she is in other moments vis-a-vis her own children. This is exactly the right direction to take it because what Elizabeth tells the adoptive mother is so deeply contrasting with how she relates to Paige and Henry, even as she can verbalize the kind of emotional dynamics or psychic dynamics that could be at work in their, in Jared's life while in costume, in character, in disguise, pretending to be this social worker or whatever, not at all recognizing that the same thing she is saying about Jared apply to Paige and Henry in a certain way, right? So she says a child adjustment starts on day one, especially after trauma. And like she's been adjusting and normalizing and disciplining her children into the lives of children of spies without them knowing it since yeah. day one. In fact, before then, because it's part of the strategy to become Americans. Or she says their entire understanding of trust has been shattered. I mean, what is going to happen if or when, right, Paige and or Henry do or do not find out about what their parents are actually doing, right? So, like, the things that she is identifying as what's happening to Jared, she can only say when she is in the guise of the social worker yeah. visiting somebody else's child. Yeah, I think that that, that, like, observation about her being in disguise to be able to verbalize these things is really spot on and, and tells us something about like whether and how Elizabeth is able to tap into like those experiences or those feelings in other moments. How Amy, do you see the way Elizabeth is acting in the eighties contrasting with the conversation she has with Leanne back in the sixties in the flashbacks in this episode? So in those flashbacks, you know, it was hard, like, they were so brief, and they felt so, like, actually sort of lacking in context, um, that it was a little bit hard. I don't know that they worked very well for me, honestly. Um, But they, she felt so much more timid in the 60s, and so Mm -hmm. much less, like, in touch with 
herself and very much like looking to Leanne for cues in a lot of ways. Um, and I sense that she, you know, has, be- I, I, I don't know. I got the sense, obviously she's always been a pro, right? Like she sees the guy, she's like, let's go, whatever that guy is, whatever they need to do, whatever their mission is. They go and then casually they're just washing the blood off their hands in like the metro bathroom or whatever. Gross thing, it has to be said. Um, and, uh, uh, but like, I think her, her hesitation then, um, only underscored for me her decisiveness in the, in the, you know, in her eighties persona, her sense of like resolve. Mm. Um, and I don't know what to make of the contrast between the two, but that's what stuck out to me. And maybe you can, I mean, the easy narration there is that motherhood sort of like strengthened her, her clarity of purpose, even in, you know, weird and counterintuitive ways. Yeah. Or even like when she wasn't forcing it to, there's sort of an, an element of like the lack of intention almost, but Mm -hmm. like it still creeps in, which I think is just like perhaps makes for an interesting commentary on motherhood. Mm. Because it has to be such an intentional decision on her part. Like so much so that, I mean, I forget which one of you was pointing this out before the episode that, she says she's not sure she wants kids. And Leanne is like, do not tell the center that. Yeah. Right. Like it's such a deliberate and multiple senses of the term, like a decision for Elizabeth that she has to hide it presumably from Philip. I mean, clearly they've talked about it when she, when she says I'm ready now to have kids yeah. after they've like had their couple of minutes of spying on Westmoreland and us <laughs> ramping up of the occupation of Vietnam, which like Vietnam comes back a couple times in this episode, which we'll yeah. get to as well. Um, and so just the, you know, part of that shift is, how the spy craft intersects with the motherhood, right? Like the constant thing that we're talking about on the show and that the, and that the TV show is doing. Yeah. Or like how the spy craft intersects with parenting. Cause I think yeah. this is a, a good place to, to chat a little bit about like Elizabeth's weaponization of Derek as a parent, right? She, we first, he, he sort of like gets is wise to what's going on. Like he know he's, he, he keeps looking at the crowbar, he yes. is clearly afraid. And then he does the thing that you're apparently supposed to do where you like give details about your life and you talk about your kids, like to someone who is potentially going to like physically harm you. Right. So he shows her the pictures and we, we sort of see Elizabeth maybe soften a little bit. It's a little bit ambiguous, but we see, I, I read it as a softening. The scene goes on and then he's like, I gave you what you wanted. Like, just let me go home. And then she's like, could I see those pictures again? Yeah. Honestly, Elizabeth, like taking the, the photo of, I think like the youngest son, yes. Daniel. Yes. Same, same name. It was chilling. This was the moment where I was like, I am afraid of Elizabeth. I am afraid of what she's capable of. And I was feeling everything that Derek was feeling. I was like, Oh God, because we know what we know that Elizabeth like will kill if necessary. Yes. Oh my God. Chilling, chilling stuff. I really felt for Derek in that moment for whom I have more to say later on. (laughs) Meanwhile, the, like the, the, the sort of, um, shall we say the more friendly form of the more like loving form of scorn, uh, disciplining comes from Philip. 
<laughs> Honestly, a shocking twist. <laughs> uh, truly. I was like, wow, you are like, you, like you are lying a hundred, this is like 100% saturated with lies, but you are pulling this off. You are hitting every beat. Like just something about how like Philip handled his conversation with Paige. I was like, damn, like you really are assimilated, you know, like, you really <laughs> do have the American parenting script fucking down. It's like, yes, let me let Paige spin out this lie about debate club. And the she's making up details about how she had much she had to prep for debate club while Philip's just like holding his coffee, stirring the coffee or the tea or whatever. And, <laughs> and before he's like, gotcha. It's very bad cop. We love it. Um, <laughs> is also like getting there, but not quite. Like obviously, she'll she won't be as good as her parents because they've been trained, you know, to do this. <laughs> but I'm like, for someone with no training, it's pretty good, you know, like pretty pretty good. But like coming up with lies, filling them in with details, like throwing them out there almost plausibly like like above average teenager stuff and teenagers are pretty good at bullshitting well and i also feel like to go back to john's point earlier right like yeah like she hasn't been trained or she has always already been trained (laughs) right and so i mean we get the and this is i think a point we made in i forget if it was uh, episode one or episode two but the way that the camera is willing to shoot page in the same way it'll shoot Elizabeth. And we get another moment of that when she sends Henry off to the bus and then like starts her mission. And she is just executing a mission like the way her parents would execute a mission. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and of course it goes wrong in several ways. And then she has the legend that she has created for herself with Philip later that goes awry, but she is operating on that wavelength already without having to consciously uh, or intentionally do so, yeah. you know, with the knowledge of her parents. I will say the much in the same way that Elizabeth gets those lines to Jared that tell a lot about the relationship uh, with her own kids. So too from Philip here, we get these lines towards Paige that highlight the, like, ex- I think, let me put this way. I think that the doubling or the splitting between the Jennings as spies and Jennings as parents is exacerbated in this episode. Yeah. And that is best encapsulated in that scene between Philip and Paige at the end, right? Lying will not be tolerated. Tell me you understand. Sorry, we don't have more of a family. All these things that are like absolutely fundamental or core to the spying mission that Philip is telling Paige as if it's just regular old parenting advice, while at and the same time forget. spinning lies and, you know, like creating the fact that the kids themselves are the lie, are the legend for them to be in America. So just like these contrasts, again, between like what is being said and what is the actual parenting or familial dynamics is quite the thing. Sorry to interrupt. I just, but don't forget, this is the most irresponsible thing you've ever done. I'm like, okay, Doc. <laughs> it's like the pot calling the kettle black. <laughs> Oh my gosh. And of course, like they're asking Paige to parent Henry and Paige parents Henry the same way that the Jennings parent Henry, which is extremely absently. They're like, you know, and even they have Paige on Henry's case at the beginning of the episode, right? And then 
pay a page just like Henry, you'll be fine for a few hours by yourself, right? Right, buddy? Of course he's looking for the star that's always there and you can always count on it. The star is his dad. And, like, let's not forget that all of this is against the backdrop of, like, Elizabeth and Philip being, like, in a heightened state of panic about the safety of their children. Yes. Right? So, like, this is what feels like typical 80s, like, nonsense, which is there's not really a way for your parents to, like, figure out that you weren't in the place where you were in. No one's, no one's like, sharing locations on their iPhones in 1981. Um, Question for you, Danielle. This is relevant to the listeners. Do you and the Hanley sisters share locations with one another? No. Okay, good. Sharing locations is a wild thing. Yeah, I I do not not understand. Same. (laughs) I am, like, addicted to my phone, and I know that, but I wish that I could leave my phone at my apartment during the day so I didn't have to deal with it. I have every single group text I'm on muted. (laughs) Like, I'm, and I, when I'm... Working. Amy, that, that one hurts. That includes yeah, I, us. I, I heard it. I let it pass. <laughs> <laughs> it, otherwise, it's just like too many notifications. What I like about... Uh, Danielle, I can't help it. I'm so popular. No, it's like... <laughs> it's mostly my dad sending pictures of like... I don't know, funny license plates or like a <laughs> or like a laundry truck and then everyone on the Hamley group text chimes in like, Dan, do you have that many clothes? Like you need a whole truck. <laughs> uh, I see. So some of it is not just the volume but the content. Uh, <laughs> some of the issue. I mean, Danielle Speaking doesn't of the parenting dynamics. Be grateful to have a father who's so omnipresent in her life, even by a Would you say yeah. that he is the North Star, the Polaris <laughs> in your own life? <laughs> oh my god, Polaris! <laughs> I think so too. Same. I think so too. All right, what else do we have to say about? Um, about parenting, or maybe maybe you want to shift gears and talk a little bit about Nina. I think even before Nina, I think one of the strange things about this episode is we've talked about loneliness. We have talked about parenting and there's a loneliness aspect to this next bit, but the episode is named after Dameron, right? The climax, one of the climaxes of the episode is Stan shoots Dameron on the top of a like laundromat <laughs> rooftop across from the world. Oh Bank boy, meeting. shot Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> that was the only discussion of it we had so far. Is. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> so how do either of you see Dameron and Stan shooting Dameron is, which is what the title of the episode is about, is about Bruce Dameron fitting into the episode where that's in some ways a marginal storyline, maybe question mark. But it like, so one, it ties back to the last episode. I was sort of yeah. struck by the fact that this episode is called the walk-in, but we actually got the walk-in in the last episode. Correct. And then the other thing is like, yeah, it's kind of a marginal storyline, except that watching Stan get better at his job is like important in a variety of ways. The, not the least of which is when Philip makes the statement like they would go to the Beamons, like, oh, like, <laughs> I, I just feel like the moment where, like, Stan is, like, getting closer to figuring out what's up with Philip and Elizabeth is, like, 
edging closer every single episode. And so, so I, I felt like his ability to like put these pieces together, even though like he couldn't figure out the laundry point for too much time. Um, it's just, it's like showing us that like the paths are, are converging perhaps more quickly than we thought they would. And yet at the same time, I think probably the show needs like the interesting about Dameron is like, he is a lone actor, right? Yes. And that there's going to be like, in order for the story to like keep extending and for Stan to not just put everything together, there have to be these like random occurrences that kind of divert his attention and throw him off the scent and give like partial information, like the Richard Prince storyline. Um, and you know, like there's just going to be stuff that happens that ultimately is like, the noise through which he won't be able to hear the signal, um, which feels like a thing that happens with Dameron. um, And that is a kind of like the important role that um, contingency and chance play in the success of Spycraft or its failure. And also to that point, Amy, the fact that this was a way for Nina to buy some credibility, like Arcadi Mm -hmm. was not interested in the walk-in and kind of shuts him down and presumably as a result of that, Dameron's like, fuck it, I'll just assassinate some World Bank leaders on my own from <laughs> across the street. And because it was Nina who told Stan they had a walk-in, right, that Stan taking the suspicion off of Nina because Nina gave him this thing that will literally get him a medal from the U.S. government. Wild, wild. I it also, sorry, It also has to be said that Dameron's entire critique felt like you take away the rooftop and the gun and we're back at the grad center. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're talking militarism. We're talking isolation and individualism. We're talking about some economic bullshit right. happening because of Ronald Reagan. Yep. Ronald Reagan doesn't care. I was yeah. like, Oh yeah. It's like back in the seminar room, baby. I'm, I'm, I'm into this. <laughs> I like to live vicariously through the episode version of these conversations. I'm into yeah. it. Yeah. And it, to be fair, it was less the seminar room than it was like the poli sci lounge, the Spitzel Lounge. The Spitzel Lounge. Oh my gosh. Pour one out. (laughs) Oh my God. Nina, I mean, this is like kind of a wild episode for Nina. The Stan saying I love you was too much for me. Um, And also, like, again, sort of like playing Nina and Sandy, those scenes off each other. It's like such a disconnect. There is a disconnect with Nina too. Like Stan just doesn't see it. It's got to be said, Nina works Stan perfectly. Oh, Oh, she drops the like, I'm proud of you, Stan. And I was like, oh, girl, like sploosh, you know, (laughs) that's what he needs to hear. And we don't see her giving the I love you back, right? Which is, we can read, of course, both as her emotional distancing from Stan, but also her continuing to, like, string Stan about. Yeah. Right? Like, and she kisses him when he says that, but doesn't say it back as if to be like, you got to keep telling me that before I'm going to say it back to you so as to maintain you on the hook of this relationship. Right. She told Arkady as much. Yeah. She told him a few episodes. She's like, he has to say it first, which is very the rules of her. Um which I don't hate, you know. So, <laughs> so. <laughs> you try to just like slide that in there, and then both Daniel and I almost missed it, and then we can, we must highlight it. It does. Uh, 
There's, I think, one last question with regard to the the Nina Stan stuff. So something new in this season is we get, like, Nina typing up these reports. And so I'm just wondering, like, how does the Nina typing while this Nina Stan montage uh, plays? How does that work for you, Amy? Okay, so I feel like you will be surprised by this reference, but it does remind me of Alice and Janney's guidance council <laughs> character and 10 Things I Hate About You. <laughs> Typing her like turgid. Oh, <laughs> perfect. Perfect. <laughs> wow. The rules and ten things I hate about with you ten things I hate about you references within like sixty-five seconds of one another. I am very excited about it. I came to play, you know. <laughs> <laughs> There's more to come. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, I think I think that it's time to get into some segments. Yes, let's do it. All right, so let's first get into some bar nostalgia for the unremembered 80s. And we start, actually, not with the 80s, but we got some flashbacks to some unremembered 60s looks in this episode. The hat situation (laughs) is out of fucking control. I would contest, by the way, that, like, the 60s since Mad Men have been less unremembered than over-remembered. Good point. And this show does over-remember them. That's a great point. I also feel like this show is over remembering like the nine the the 60s of like Liverpool <laughs> not <laughs> yes I was like wh- what country are we in this does not feel like America with these hats <laughs> there was also a very interesting and subtle difference I don't know if this is intentional for the actresses or not but it sounds like their cadences sounded uh, just a yes. touch more Russian yeah yes. which makes sense right because like you know, Elizabeth and Philip, I think, had only gotten there a couple of maybe a year before that. Yeah. Leanne and Emmett are are maybe a, a year or two, like they're a little bit before them. So it would make sense that they're like still figuring out their American accent. And but, the, but there was something heavy handed about like, do you know the Revolver album? <laughs> like, okay, it is a good album, right? The best. <laughs> So we get the speaking of music. Speaking of music, oh, uh, perfect! Yes, nice. we all we all we all know where that was going. We get not discussion of, but actually, we get to hear uh, some of Peter Gabriel's "Here Comes the Flood," featuring uh, the God Robert Fripp on guitar. Apparently, um, the second Peter Gabriel experience uh, in the <laughs> Americans. The they, they finale really mean, of season one was also Peter Gabriel. They really lean on the music to. Um, infuse the pathos that the characters can't express. Perfectly said. And that song is a ridiculous song and a hokey-ass song, but it nonetheless has the pathos and it's about sons and daughters, right? So, like, you know, it's a little bit, like, two on the nose or whatever the cliche is, but it worked for me. Listen, I'm here for Peter Gabriel. We're back in Harry Styles' corner. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and a hidden bonus segment of now every episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I've been listening, not religiously, but pretty extensively to Harry Styles' cover of Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer, which is pretty phenomenal. A phenomenal song and a, and a pretty amazing cover. Um so listen, I'm happy for anything in this episode that lets me talk about Harry Styles a little bit. <laughs> Let's hope that Harry Styles maintains his hair longer than our guy Peter oh. Gabriel. As oh, a fellow bald man, I respect Harry's <laughs> hair. As a fellow bald man to Peter Gabriel, I respect Harry Styles' hair, I should say. I feel that. I feel that. Um, we also get, this is my favorite uh, 80s reference in this episode. It's the tab vending machine. <laughs> like, 
do you want a soda? It's like, also, it's such a perfect location for one. I love a vending machine. Yesterday I got a seltzer out of a vending machine. I felt like I was in 1997. It felt amazing. Um, but I love, this felt like the perfect location for like a drop site where, where like they could put some spy stuff, uh, just like a casual vending machine at a gas station. And it was tab. Yeah. Has anybody on this call ever tried Tab? No. I wish. I wish me I either. had a yeah. <laughs> Tab makes me think of Five Alive, um, which was like another thing that was in vending machines when I was growing up. It was like all it was like there was an old Five Alive vending machine at one of the pools I swam in. I, I I'm speechless. I don't know what Five Alive is. Is it a soda? Is it like the precursor to Four Loco? Is I it you that. know? Sorry, I had the four or the five. I had to do it. I Honestly, to. amazing. <laughs> we also get, I said this earlier, but like this is the worst wig I've seen Elizabeth in. <laughs> but it is definitely the most 80s of the wigs thus far. Um, just like her and whole the, vibe. Elizabeth has been looking so good. Right? Like, the the glow-up has been real. Like, she's been sort of transcending the 80s a bit. Like, she's got solid colors. She's got that beautiful, like, nice understated gold jewelry. So they really turn it up when they have to go into disguise. Like, they turn up the tacky factor. I mean, I th- I maintain that they don't actually dress Elizabeth like she's in the 80s. Yeah, um, probably true. So I, I think the transcend the, the, the 80s, it, like, that's a, I like the way that you put that. Yeah. I mean, all of the, actually, there's a lot of outfits that are knits on knits in this episode. <laughs> like, there's Paige's crocheted, like, long <laughs> armhole sweater vest over a turtleneck. Yeah. There's a similar ensemble on Jared's, like, foster mom. There's, there, like, just a lot of, like, chunky knits and layered knits that yeah, feel yeah, yeah. real 80s. Paige, but also coming back now. disconnected emotionally from her parents, but they're all on the same wavelength when it comes to the turtlenecks. Also, Paige... Actually, it's Clark, not Philip, who wears the turtlenecks, so scratch that. <laughs> Make it that what you will. Makes yeah. it even worse. Um, also Paige's boots are like aggressive for a high schooler question mark. High middle schooler. schooler? Yeah. I high think schooler. Maybe last year of middle school. But like, again, I think like another thing where it's, she's like a little bit mini Elizabeth in her fashion. Definitely. It's on the come up. <laughs> <laughs> what about some of the interiors in this episode? So I, like, I was looking at um, the kitchens and the offices, um, most of all. And, like, the Beeman's Kitchen water pitcher, the, like, plastic, like, yellow-brown plastic water pitcher, the stove, the stuff on the counters, actually reminds me that we're in the early 80s and that in some ways the 80s are, like, you know how decades are, like, the long such-and-such or the short such-and-such? Like, this does feel... the, the, The domestic interiors feel a bit more like extension of the late seventies at this point. Like they haven't, they don't have enough money to renovate yet, frankly, um, (laughs) redecorate. Meanwhile, the offices, I like, I just remember there was just like little, like the phone and the computer. Yeah. Yeah. 
were like just that perfect chonky, you know, the computer with the MS DOS, like, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yes. exactly. Oh, and the laundromat has that, like, oh yeah, so laundr- full- yes, but and that was that was the very long seventies because like there yeah. are plenty of laundromats around Prospect and Crown Heights that I attended in the uh, mid early to mid tens that had the exact same decor and vibe. Yep. Yep. Guys, the laundromats in Worcester still look the same. So I'm just, um, I think there's one more thing we wanted to hit in bar nostalgia. Amy, I want to throw it to you. Oh my God. So Kelly's perm, finally curly hair on the show. Justice for Carrie Russell, sort of. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But she just, it's all, oh my God. Just the, the, the crispiest, <laughs> like precisely formed perm curls. Yes, I was envious of this hair. I'm I'm with you on this. This was like a this was a good this is a good '80s ref. We have who will later become a recurring like secondary or tertiary character with a spot on perm. So mm, more amazing. to come. More to come amazing. on this front. But yeah, Kelly's hair and like general Kelly's perspective on divorce felt very '80s to me. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And also like, oh, we met for 30 seconds on this bus. Let's be friends, which is not a thing that happens anymore. I literally am trying to still trying to make friends in a city I've lived in for 10 months. Um, and she's like, oh, we're best friends now. Let's hang out. <laughs> Amazing. The, the most eighties of it all. All right. I think Kelly would have been a minor character of the week, potential candidate if not for our actual minor character of the week. I found Derek very moving as a character. I was impressed with his savvy that he like twigged to what was happening yes. and like followed. I was like, Oh, I would not have the presence of mind or the self-possession. Like I, I would have just done some like ADHD dumbass bullshit and like, and like, no, 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 I'll go get my supervisor. Like just not clocked anything, you know? Um, and he like, Followed the protocol really well. And I just found his vulnerability and his, like, very deep, like, the fear, the love that he had for his children, like, the, the, oh, my God. He just seemed like a very, like, uh, at once this very, like, sweet, genuine, vulnerable man who had, like, enough, who also had enough, like, savvy and street smarts to like navigate through a really tense and like dangerous situation. Um, so I just, I give it up for Derek. I'm, I'm hoping he's okay. I'm hoping that Danny's, you know, stays, stays golden. Um, <laughs> I hope and we never see those kids again. Like that's what exactly, I hope. <laughs> exactly. And with that vulnerability, right. It works. Right? Mm-hmm. At the end of the episode, there's, you know, a five or 10 second conversation between Philip and Elizabeth that he won't talk. He'll stay silent. Of course, because to the point earlier, Elizabeth is terrifying and has taken this photo of Danny as like the threat um, that's yeah. actually looming over him. But the vulnerability works. Good, good, good vulnerability, Dave T. Koenig, who played Derek. Yes. In this episode. Yes. Great acting. Great. Very memorable performance. All right. Danielle, it's time for maybe your favorite part of the podcast. What are the conspiracies you'd like to offer us in the dossier? This just week? two, just like two quick entries in the dossier. One, who is Anne Helen? Like, like <laughs> who is she? I, I don't know, but like, I am afraid to find out. Is Anne Helen Gabriel? 
who knows, maybe. Um, but then also like Kelly slash like who is the watcher that the center is like putting on them. And is it Kelly? Like that's, that's my theory. That's what's in the dossier. I don't know. Paige was working overtime for the dossier this week. Both Van Helen and Kelly, they both like both dig in. Do you want to? Yeah, go ahead, Amy. The spycraft is tight, man. They're like, oh, if anyone checks on Aunt Helen, we've got an Aunt Helen right here with pictures in the interior. <laughs> I was afraid because I was like, I don't know, like this happened quickly. Maybe there isn't an Aunt Helen. But then like, of course, there's a picture of Elizabeth and Paige. Was Elizabeth's face like <laughs> pasted on to an <laughs> existing picture? I don't know. That's all I've got for the dossier this week. But um, I don't know. It, I feel like we're going to get some answers to those things in the in the future, in the upcoming episodes. So I'm just excited to to see how those two files in the dossier get closed. Agreed. Anything you want to say in the dossier about following up on the murders of Jared's parents? Anything that you have thought about since those happened in episode one, Danielle? So much though the 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 way that Elizabeth was being shot while she was in that house made it feel like there was someone there, which I think like the shots were designed to do. No, I'm I'm still mulling the mulling those over. All right, if you will. Fair enough. Let's go to class. We keep going, and I'll start off. And there's this scene that I hadn't really ever clocked before between Stan and Gad at FBI headquarters where they're talking about Dameron and they mention his military service. And Gad talks about how he was in Walter Reed for a month because he had third degree burns on both of his legs because he had served in Vietnam, was in the bottle of Quezon, and this happened. And Stan says, well, I was just working for the FBI. And Gad said, so was I, right? So, like, I never quite clocked that there's that... Maybe Gad is, like, skeptical or, like, is pointing out to Stan that he was more willing to sacrifice himself than um, than Stan was. I don't know. How did you all read anything in that scene? Yeah, like, just a little bit of, like, chest puffing, um, mm-hmm. which I think we get a little bit between them. Yes. Like, that's not the first time we've gotten it. But, but yeah, I, I appreciate that you pointed it out because I think that that is just worth, like, like filing away like into a ser- into a set of patterns that maybe we're like seeing emerge and fits in with the way that gad is a certain avatar certain kind of avatar for reagan militarism and kind of reagan approach to law and justice quote unquote um in the entirety of the show it also nicely echoes the 1960s dispatches about like westmoreland exactly. sending more troops like you can sort of clock it on the, on the American side. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And I do, I did wonder, and again, this is something I only thought about this time through watching the show that maybe one of the things that makes Stan more easily able to shoot Dameron is like, he's got to do a little to prove that he's willing to commit violence Mm. on behalf of the state, the way that Gad sacrificed both of his legs for, or, you know, had was suffered burns for and put his body on the line, quote unquote, for, uh, for the, for the state in Vietnam. Well, there's some real Darth Vader energy coming off of Gad. (laughs) (laughs) 
Whoa. (laughs) We'll come back to that in another episode. I've got like a whole series that are bubbling, but they're not ready yet. Nice. That's that's quite the tease. Um, Yeah, for real. There are a couple things that just didn't work for me in this episode. I'll highlight two of them. One is as Peter Gabriel is crooning at the end of the episode, this like shot of Elizabeth burning the letter that Leanne had said, give this to the kids or give this to Jared if something ever happens to us. Just like a little cliched, a little too melodramatic and in a way that's like not quite earned and like it does a little, a little too much for me. And it went on so long. Yes. Like what, like what is that? Is that like a spycraft thing where you do the accordion fold and then you light every corner? Like what is that just to make sure it burns completely, which I didn't think you would have to worry about if you were setting something on fire. She's like, also just like at the docks. She's like, you know, put it, she smoked the cigarette. As I've told uh, Daniel many times, like when Elizabeth is smoking cigs, yeah. be concerned about her emotional state. Yeah. And then yeah, she goes and lights it. it. So it's the rest of that montage, I think works really, really well, right? There's the Henry throwing the star chart in the trash. There's Paige sneaking back out while Philip is in the <laughs> laundry room, dark room, like the mm-hmm. other parts of the montage are really really good especially played yeah. against the like mediocre peter gabriel song but then right. like and that they, doesn't and, work and to the first part of the episode they're all on their own yeah yes like, that's what it underscored for me yeah. like, we end up with every character in their own little space just doing their own thing feeling very disconnected and apart yes the other yeah. thing that didn't work for me um there's a lot of talk in the past months about like overworked visual effects departments leading to bad visual effects in like content IP properties. And there's some bad visual effects in this episode of the green screen going on in the background of the bus ride as Kelly and Paige are talking to one another. It's like the, the Americans, the, they're really good at a lot of things. One thing they're not good at is disguising car rides and car ride backgrounds. I also think like what makes this one worse is they're also talking about the background. They're like, oh, and there's so much corn outside of DC. It's like, just don't draw attention to it. Just like talk about another thing. Don't tell us about the shitty background. Amazing. Um, Amy, you had an, so Paige is obviously on her way to Aunt Helen. You had an Aunt Helen note you'd like to add, Amy. Susie Miser, who plays Sandy, she is a, I mentioned this in my first yes. appearance, she's a Gossip Girl um, character. She's Rufus Humphrey's wife. Um, in this episode, we get another Gossip Girl actress. Um, I believe her name is Kathleen Chalfant. She plays Aunt Helen. And she is Cece Rhodes, um, mother of Lily Rhodes and grandmother of Serena Vanderwoodson. Um, so make of that what you, like there are just certain wells that shows draw from, I find it intriguing in ways that I will expand on, uh, that this one draws from Gossip Girl. I've seen like a lot of Frasier characters, pop Frasier actors pop up lately in various shows. So I'm just going to keep tracing the, the pipe, the Gossip Girl Americans pipeline. Look, they, they remade Gossip Girl. Maybe they can do a retro Gossip Girl back in the eighties and cross it over with the Americans. No, thank you. Oof. Yeah, I will say I <laughs> because I love that. crossovers and remakes so much. You, yeah, I, I know. Up, I don't think we need more Upper East Side in the eighties content. <laughs> we we got Bonfire of the Vanities. We're fine. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> All right. One, I promised that I had some thoughts on on the 
hockey tickets, the ticket scalping earlier. Yeah. I just want to say the A that Oyeg's like, I'm cool. I'm going to go to the hockey game and I'm going to trash talk the shitty Americans and their hockey is classic Oyeg and really, yeah. really funny to me. Yeah. And agree. secondly, like the conversation that they have about scalping is incredible because on a character level, it of course highlights that Oyeg is clued into American culture and American capitalism. And Nina's like not having any of that, even though she was participating in those kinds of relationships, that's what got her caught in the first place. So it's just like the contrast between the two characters, but Oyeg telling Nina to scalp the tickets and Nina being like, I don't know that word. What does that mean? And like, Oleg is just like, it's a capitalist, uh, like it's a capitalist term or capitalist word. And that like, I forgot that the adjective capitalist in Russian is capitalist. Uh, so it's just turning the word and making it a slightly more Russian. All of that was just exceptionally amusing to me. Yeah. And I want to know who, what happened to the tickets. I really thought she was going to give, give it to Stan. <laughs> Oh, that would have been perfect. Why didn't she do that? I don't know. Oh, it made me so sad that she didn't. I was like, yeah. we were, the Stan Oleg like buddy comedy is what we all need in our lives. Holy shit. Yes. <laughs> and it would have worked, right? Because she's the cultural attache at the KGB yeah. or, or, or at the embassy. That's her cover. So That's good. That's exactly. really good. Exactly. Wow. Can we talk about the best line? I think we've all agreed this is the best line yes. that comes in early. One million which is uh, Stan, uh, sort of baffled saying to Sandy, like what, as he's staked out the laundromat, he's like, what single guy does four loads of laundry? And in an, a perfect and sadly timeless, Sandy <laughs> yeah. says, what married guy does four loads of laundry? <laughs> Just like, boom, like yeah. done, knocked out, got him. Honestly, okay, I'm dead. Great. I, I, the, this line is the platonic ideal of comebacks. Done. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Just great. Let's move on to the cave. Amy, who are we taking down into the cave with us this week? So, in a, in a move surprising even myself, um, <laughs> really like, it happens I nominated Simone Vey because, again, the theme for me for this episode was, was loneliness and isolation and separation. And I had this vague like indexing of her in my brain as like a real like chronicler and theorist of loneliness. And in some ways a like celebrant of it. Like she, she really, you know, that's sort of part of her mystical bent um, is kind of celebrating this sense, like almost this like transcendent feeling of like becoming detached from you know, becoming detached from entanglement so that you can be more sort of like purely in tune with like the divine. It's very weird. But I, I looked it up and there is actually a quote in Gravity and Grace, one of Vey's books, um, that felt to me to summarize um, the kind of the, the impossibility of friendship and the impossibility of intimacy in the lives of certainly Philip and Elizabeth, um, as well as most of the other characters here. So I'm just going to read that quote real quick. Um, to desire friendship is a great fault. Friendship should be a gratuitous joy like those afforded by art or life. We must refuse it so that we may be worthy to receive it. It is one of those things which are added unto us. Each dream of friendship deserves to be shattered. Friendship is not to be sought not to be dreamed, not to be desired. It is a virtue. 
there's something about the sort of weird aestheticism of that, um, the kind of like rigor of that that feels very uh, connected to Elizabeth first and foremost, but really all of these characters and the kind of rigor with which they have to detach themselves from any genuine pleasure or intimacy. I love that. I we were we were talking about this a little bit in pre-production, but like. Look at us having pre-production. That's a very fancy way to say that. I'm, I'm really impressed. proud of us. You guys are lucky I didn't say pre-pro, which is what I thought about. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. They is not someone that John or myself is like particularly well-versed in. And so like it is like so exciting to have a theorist that we're not like that are sort of not on our collective radar come in with us. But I also think Amy, like this choice, like just in the way that you explained it, like it really, I think they helps highlight some of the, like the darker aspects of this episode in a, in a, in a slightly more poetic way than just the like general womp womp that we've been feeling about the ep. Right. It raises the loneliness. It raises the despair, raises the question about the possibility of human relation in the first place to a more like philosophical plane through they. And that's something that I think we can all agree is possibly is possible with the Americans to a large extent, but that like other than some quips from the occasional Soviet character is not necessarily explicitly explicitly done in the show. So I, I like and, this and, one, Bay. And for Elizabeth, I mean, for, for most of the characters, I mean, I think like that, that pathos is made holy by the sense that it has this higher purpose in the way that exactly. I think it would for Bay. Yeah. No, I think that that's right. And I think that that's sort of like the key point here. This has been a pretty successful jaunt into the cave. Bay is an, I think, a an apt companion for us. Absolutely. Thank you, Amy. You're very welcome. Thank you, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, who yeah, was no, a right. consultant on this episode. <laughs> I'll give you. I'll give a plug. Actually, this is the the newsletter from the newsletter, The Marginalian, uh, which used to be Brain Pickings by Maria Popova. Um, so you know, maybe a little Soviet callback there. If I can, before we get into the very last segment, I want to just throw one thing in that we didn't get to in class, which yeah. is oh, in the interiors, the baseball posters in the next to the file cabinet mm-hmm. uh, corporate boss. I can't remember the world bank, the head of like the right. world yeah. bank department. Oh, the head of the world bank. Right, right. That guy. Um, yes. His, uh, his baseball posters keeping in theme with baseball's importance on the Americans and on this podcast and on the- <laughs> <laughs> our lives really. Yeah. I mean, all right. Before we go, there's something important that needs to happen. Last time you were here, Amy, you pitched us that we should watch and talk about the show Billions on Not Quite Great Books. Uh, I believe the official verdict was a rejection on that pitch. Do you have another pitch you want to give us? I'm going to pitch Gossip Girl. Um, and I'm going to pitch Gossip Girl. I mean, first of all, like, because... Why, if you're not going to accept one show about Upper East Side rich people, perhaps you will accept another. I will just, perhaps I'll just keep banging this, <laughs> this drum. Uh, uh. Sure, sure to win. I'm sure to win on this, with this tag. No, here's the thing. Though I've mentioned the, the pipeline of actors um, between the shows, maybe there's something to the analogy between like Whisper Network's alliances, not knowing who is up to what, what the agendas are, who is she, I'll never tell, XOXO Gossip Girl. There's a, it's, it's, um, 
a lighthearted, arguably, though not always, lower stakes version of the spy craft that we see <laughs> on the American. Full disclosure, I watched, I think, all of the original Gossip Girl. I am not interested in a reboot. Um, totally agree. I am only referring to the original. I'm more sympathetic to this pitch about rich people on the Upper East Side because at least it's mostly about kids. And then the like parent stuff does have some like, like real world class questions. They're not raised well, but at least they're there. Like, yeah. So I, I'm more sympathetic to this than billions. I will say I'm in the middle right now of reading The Interestings by Meg Wolitzer was a suggestion by both of my podcast friends right now. Um, and so I'd be here for more teens in New York City, teens on the Upper East Side content. So this more successful as a pitch, I would say, than Billions. My like one drawback is if we're thinking about this as a pitch of things we should do on this podcast, like we'll never stop podcasting. <laughs> like, <there's laughs> yeah, that's true. Million episodes of that. <laughs> that's true. And I, I would maintain just for my own integrity that both of the shows that I've pitched would have similar generativity as podcast fodder. I think I would just be like, rich people are annoying <laughs> in every episode. Like, That's Danielle, the Danielle Dossie. <laughs> Danielle's thoughts on rich people in the Dossie. <laughs> All right. So Amy, you mentioned your own integrity. Your integrity was attacked, one might say slandered, by all of our mutual friend Jonathan Keller on uh, the is he though? <laughs> <laughs> He's definitely my mutual friend. On, on on the season one finale of this of this podcast. We wanted, I think Danielle and I felt it very important to clear out some space for you to respond, to offer a rejoinder to Keller. Thank you for reminding me that Keller was on the podcast. <laughs> Um, now it's coming back from the dim recesses <laughs> of my memory because I, so I have been very busy. I am writing a book uh, about their contract, um, and and as somebody whose schedule is really packed, I was I was sort of touched that Keller had like five hours to spend recording a podcast with you guys, and in fact was a little surprised to hear that his sabbatical is in the fall. <laughs> sort of. The long rambling stories had a bit of a like grandpa being visited in the nursing home vibe to them. This is mean. <laughs> I, 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 so I really, you know, I hope that his upcoming sabbatical has, has more things going on than waiting for John and Danielle to come around and uh, ask for his, <laughs> his ask for stories from the old days. I feel like this got into slander for us and like you're on our podcast. <laughs> Like, get I out of here. I think you guys were very generous. I think you guys were incredibly generous to this old man. Wow. I mean, I think it was always the plan that we were going to offer Amy the chance to respond. I didn't realize that we were going to let's just make fun of John being older than us and washed was the way we were going to do it. It's true. It's true. Uh, listen, you can't be, it can't be said that I didn't swing all the way through, you know? <laughs> It definitely cannot be said. Listen, I 
I am a John Keller stan. So like I'm I'm out here defending Keller. I would have been on this podcast for eight hours with him. Like, <laughs> I, like, I would have heard more Levborn stories. Like give me more Keller. No, I listen, in all seriousness, I too am a fan of John Keller. I I am indebted to him as all of us are uh, for his like guidance and humor and he's just fantastic and and what a delight um and i'm i'm glad that that he's you know listen, a we, fellow guest on this podcast listen, as a producer i'm happy to welcome him to the <laughs> not quite great books family listen we get it like the guardians are getting trounced in the al central and these are running away with it and like you just needed to voice some of that frustration like keller is the object of that voice like Listen, I'm oh, happy it wasn't I, me. No, I, I, I want to be clear. Like, I I keep my baseball beast very separate from my personal ones. That I'm seems very like a lie. <laughs> I have to say, then this is a sign of, like, how, I don't know, not quite great books pilled I've become. But the Guardian's references, I had to go through, like, two, <laughs> two things that I do not relate to, both Loki and then baseball, like, professional Major League Baseball in the year of our Lord 2022. And, like... Those are both things that are now present in my mind, thanks to not quite great books. I'm impressed that like the first thing was not the Republic. Shit, I mean, but, but again, like I said, I hope you know, listener Mike and and any other listeners, <laughs> if you want to write in letters of support uh, for either, for my for me um, and for <laughs> because I, like Keller shot first is number one. True. Keller shot first, True. so let let it be said. Canon. But but we, but I but oh. it's all love and uh, I can't wait to go to McManus with him and uh, oh. talk some more shit. I do love McManus. <laughs> talk about a place with good tater tots, right? McManus has really good tater tots. I was eating tater tots before this taping, folks. Uh, tater tots brings us all together. It does. What a, what a great note to end it on. Absolutely. So tater tots. You know what? Tater tots the best snack after racquetball. Um, I think nice. that's, I think that does it for this episode. Up next, we have, of course, a Loki episode. Uh, it'll be season one, episode four of Loki coming up. And then after that will be season two, episode four of the Americans, a little night music, a classic, if I may say so. I'm excited. I'm jealous that I'm not on that. I'm not on that episode recording. No spoilers. I haven't watched it yet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Talk to you guys later. Thank you for having me again. Thank you so much, Amy. We are so happy to have you here. As you said, stepping from, you know, behind the mic to in front of the mic uh, so graciously. Anytime. Thanks for joining us on Not Quite Great Books. A TV podcast. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon and indirectly producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball.